0: Earlier this year, the Australian medtech sector reunited in Melbourne to learn, connect, and celebrate its achievements at the OzMedTech 22 conference by Biotech. So they had a record turnout, and it was a great event overall. Talking Health Tech was there, and we recorded interviews with speakers at our booth. And so today, you're going to be able to hear some of those conversations in this episode. So the theme for Oz MedTech 22 was MedTech and Manufacturing: Building Global Capability, which really reflected the industry's international successes and aspirations. Now I know that the Oz Biotech team are busy organising the next Oz MedTech conference as well right now, which is going to be in Adelaide next year on the 24th and 25th of May. So put that in the diaries and keep an eye on Oz MedTech. .com.au for more information on that as it becomes available. And while we're at it, if you enjoyed this event, then consider coming along to Australia's largest life sciences conference, AusBioTech22. It's going to be a big week in Perth on the 26th and 28th of October of this year. And as part of that whole big week, talking health tech is going to be heading over to Perth because we're media partners for Invest, Australia's largest life sciences investment conference. And that's focused on connecting investors with innovative biotech companies that are public and private. So Talking Health Tech is going to be hanging out in the media lounge at Invest. So make sure you come over and say hello if you're around. And I'll definitely be popping into OzBiotech 22 as well during that week. So, for more information about OzBiotech, Biotech, Aus Bio Invest, and Aus MedTech 23, then all of the links are in the show notes of this podcast episode and on the article for this episode on the website as well. But right now, you're going to hear quick conversations that we had with speakers at Aus MedTech 22. Let's go. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen.
1: Welcome to Talking Health Tech, a podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. Here's your host, Peter Birch.
0: On the show today, you're going to hear conversations we had with speakers at the AusMedTech 22 event in Melbourne. We cover topics like Australian manufacturing and global expansion, implications of cybersecurity, the diagnostic landscape post COVID-19, building an appropriate board, challenges and opportunities in reimbursement, clinical trials in medtech, the role of connectivity in transforming healthcare, talent and diversity, and some conversations with participants and judges in sessions of accelerators and incubators and early stage investment sessions as well. Jam packed. And at the end of the episode, I was lucky enough to be joined by none other than Lorraine, the CEO of Oz Biotech. So you'll hear that conversation at the end. But let's get started. All the conversations are back to back, and each speaker will introduce themselves before it starts. Let's go. Uh,
2: my name is Annabella. I am the managing director of Levac. So Levac is a surgical devices company. It specialises in developing novel products that minimise the trauma caused during surgery. We see ourselves as an enabling company where we enable advances in surgical practices where our device is really well suited to minimally invasive surgery, but then also robotic surgery and whatever next surgery is coming.
1: So you're presenting at a session today. Can you tell us a little bit about that session and your key messages?
2: Yep. So the session today is called Australian Manufacturing and Global Expansion. I think the key messages for us are that our core product the Levac retractor is an Australian invention it's Australian made and we're in the process of launching in global markets our key focus at the moment is a launch in the US we've been in the US we launched a soft launch during COVID but we're really focused now on scaling our sales and surgeon use in that market.
3: Okay, I'm Sammy Nabulsi and I am the managing director of Cook Medical in Australia, Mm -hmm. a medical devices company based up in Brisbane. And we are a developer and manufacturer of a variety of medical devices, Mm -hmm. primarily In Australia, primarily IVF products and stain grafts, uh, which are used for treating aneurysms. And both those technologies were developed here in Australia. So they're Australian innovations, which is good. But we're part of a US-based multinational company.
0: Interesting. And so what brings you to this event today?
3: Look, we often come to this event a number of reasons. One is to just understand what the medtech industry is up to and (laughs) get up to speed with what's happening. And two, to just catch up with old um, colleagues and just make connections. Long overdue. And so
0: you were were up on stage as well. Tell us a bit about what you were involved in there.
3: I was on stage as part of a panel talking about successful manufacturing in Australia with three other people. Seer was one of the companies and the work they've done over the last five years has been mm. really impressive. Alum, you yeah. know, another big success story and Annabella from Liveback. Yeah. Yeah. Three really good stories actually.
0: I've heard that a bit come out in some of my discussions that I've had with people as well is the importance of leaning in on manufacturing in Australia and understanding the capability that exists here locally too, because there are increasing pressures of relying on doing it offshore. Did that kind of come up in the discussions today? Yeah,
3: look, it did. And, and you know, one thing that's kind of a lot of people are talking about is the $1.5 billion commitment that the Labor government has, has made. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we need to get into the detail of that and what that means and where the money is going to be invested. It's a, It's a good time and it's a great Opportunity for this industry, I think, to take advantage of that at mm-hmm. this point in time, and and speak with one voice, and make sure that we are uh, making it clear to the government where the gaps are and where they can really help. So, yep, yep.
4: Um,
3: you know, one and a half billion dollars is not a huge amount of money in the big scheme of things. So, if it's spent wisely, I, uh, wisely, I think it can make a big difference.
0: Yep. And any other key points or themes that you felt resonated
3: with you or the people who are watching the session? One thing for me, you know like I said we've been coming to this conference for quite a while. There is a really noticeable difference over the last ten years in how fast some things are getting to market now. I think the ecosystem is growing there's a bit more support for startups around the place, like obviously there's still more and more needs but it's really, I think it was, it's pretty exciting to see that the whole industry is evolving and not standing still, like before that, you would kind of go to these conferences and think, you know, nothing's changed, it's same same. Yeah. but really noticeable, actually, the, the last few same years. Times, yeah.
4: Yeah.
5: So I'm Tam Nguyen, I'm the deputy director of research at Fitzsimminson Hospital, Melbourne.
0: Thanks, Tam, great to see you in person. I know, Uh, it's been great. (laughs) I'm used to seeing you in a little box. On the screen, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So you'll be, uh, you're no stranger to events like this, but tell us what you're doing at AusMedTech22.
5: Sure, so I'm on the program committee, putting program together, but also moderating a session on clinical trials in MedTech, that's later on this afternoon.
0: Amazing, and so who are some of the other speakers in that, and what are some of the key topics or themes or discussion points you're expecting to come out of the session?
5: Well, you know, it's been awesome at tech uh, and clinical trials. You know, there's some differentiation between drugs trial and devices trial. We've got a couple of key people on the panel. So Kumran Manny, who's the uh, director of VD for a Catalyst Network, which is part of AstraZeneca. So he's coming down from Sydney. Associate Professor Sung Lee, she's a clinician, and she's the Project Director for Virtual Hospital at Monash Health, Michelle Gallagher, CEO of OPAL, so a lot of you would be aware of her and her work, and Chelsea Cornelis from Analytica, and so focusing on different aspects of clinical trials and med tech, but things relating to that is, you know, big data, real evidence, real data.
0: Yeah, mm. and it's interesting, particularly when you talk about big data as well, the more that increased prevalence of software in some of these devices or the importance of software in some of these devices it's not just about the um the physical bits and pieces of course it's about how the intelligence and the data that comes out of it as well so maybe that's going to come in the conversation too
5: exactly exactly and you know software is a medical device you know this session this morning john Skerritt from TGA mm. cover some of that um but this is dealing with you know the practical the the clinical validation at the hospitals and how you go about and and I myself work at the hospital so you know sort of making sure people cross all of that but I should also mention you know we've got a booth here at the conference and sponsoring the coffee cart, so make yeah. sure you swing by to grab some coffee.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good friends with, so, and lastly, then Saint Vincents and, and the clinical trial space. What's, what's exciting, what's new, what's on your radar at the moment and what you're working, busy working on?
5: Well, the big thing at the moment we've got is the Akinet Centre for Medical Discovery, which is a, a specialised centre, a hub of bringing science, engineering, medicine together and yep. business as well. So it, it's a um, first hospital-based bioengineering devices research institute in a way. So it's a hub of 10 partners. So okay. Simmonson is the lead clinical partners with the like of Melbourne University, Onyx Institute, and a whole heap of other partners involved in Devices, implants, and so on and so forth, but as well as the work in 3D printing, tissue engineering. Mm. So it's, it's pretty exciting. And part of that will be obviously the data collections mm. and big data and how we collect data but use data wisely yeah. as well.
4: Um, I'm Kumaran Mani I'm from AstraZeneca, uh, heads of the business development and also our health innovation hub and digital health initiative in Australia and New Zealand.
1: Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit about your organisation?
4: Yeah, as you know, I think they're one of the largest pharmaceutical company in the world and we've got a bigger presence in Australia as well from early stage R&D collaboration, clinical trial, manufacturing, sales and marketing and also now Health Innovation Hub and which main objective is to support the local innovation ecosystem through supporting the startup companies that comes out of whether it's in medical devices or diagnostics or digital health in the space and of course in the pharma sector as well.
1: Excellent. So you're presenting at a session at the event. Can you tell us a little bit about the session and what the key messages are?
4: Sure. Supporting uh, OsmerTech around digital health and its impact on clinical trial and wider patient impact through that. So the session is focusing how the things have changed through the digitization in the early stage clinical trials and also how do we support, uh, as I mentioned, local innovation ecosystem through our programs that we have, whether it's a mentorship our partnership with Austrade and CSIRO looking at opportunities to impact the innovation ecosystem and then have a thriving startup ecosystem that able to bring in new products and technologies to have a better impact on the patient outcomes and also more importantly the experience.
6: So I'm Professor Karen Butler-Henderson and I'm from RMIT University. Excellent. And what what have you been doing at RMIT? So I'm the director of the Digital Health Hub, which we are officially launching on the 1st of June. So the Digital Health Hub is a university-wide entity that brings together our industry partners through our pipeline through to our fantastic academics across all areas of digital health.
1: Awesome. So you've been chairing a session this morning Can you tell us a bit about what that session was about and maybe what the key messages were?
6: So I had the great honour of introducing the marvellous um, Vince McCauley from Telstra Health who was talking about interoperability and standards that we have in, in Australia as well as all the wonderful things that Telstra Health are doing. I think the key message we took away is standards are critical. And there's so many standards and so many competing standards that we really need to be able to come together as an Australian collective to be able to develop one meaningful standard that can apply across the health system and make sure that we're doing health and we're doing data right.
0: If you've been kicking around this industry a bit like me or maybe even you're brand new to digital health, you've probably worked out that health tech is not an individual sport. Whatever you're trying to achieve, whether you're delivering healthcare for patients, or you're building health technology, or perhaps you're helping deploy solutions across health systems, you need a tribe, a community of like-minded individuals who just get it that if we're going to transform healthcare, then technology is going to play a huge part in it. So to learn and connect about health tech and level up your game, consider joining our THT Plus membership community. We've got options for every stage of growth, whether you're a solo individual or a startup or scale-up company. As an individual, you get access to our exclusive community forum, you get a warm intro to two other members from me each month, you get free access to our quarterly virtual summits, and a bunch of other exclusive goodies. Companies can bring team members into the community, plus you get a presence on our website as a THT Plus member, you can post content like news events and jobs, and of course we love to showcase our members, so when you join as a company THT Plus member, you'll get to appear on this podcast with your very own episode. This podcast is made possible through the support of our members, it's literally the heart of everything we do, so consider joining as a THT Plus member, you can join anytime online, just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT
7: My name is Yadvi Garwal. I'm from Zinc Technologies in Brisbane, which is a biotech startup. I'm a product manager at Zinc Technologies.
0: Cool. And what brings you to the conference
7: today? Sure. I'm here on a panel discussion um, that was talking about the future of diagnostics post COVID-19, looking at the journey of COVID-19 and where point of care diagnostics will go next.
0: Yeah. And how did that go? What were some of the key themes and, and discussion points that came out of that session? Mm-hmm.
7: So as part of our development, we were part of this U.S. initiative called the RADx program. Think of it like the Apollo program for diagnostics in tackling COVID. And so I was part of that panel talking about our life, our experiences and journey, and we're joined by a very senior person from the RADx program who flew over from the U.S. And so one of the key points that I wanted to bring up was the program was really unique in the way that it actually not only gave us money to develop diagnostics and other companies around the world for diagnostics, but they gave a lot of incredible in-kind support They have some of the world's best people and the project managing everyone. They had the best regulatory experts. As the US government, they marshaled great resources, just giving us access to samples, to infrastructure. Mm. Uh, So I've never seen anything like it. And I think something Australia could learn for, we can't match the US dollar for dollar in funding but we don't need to target as many companies. You know, The ones we do, we could support that in a very structured way with a really clear outcome. Here, funding's either very early term, you get something out of the university, or then very late, where you've already got quite a bit of money, you've got everything behind you, and you're doing a, a dollar matching, or you're doing a three to one matching, and you've kind of on your way there. But the in-between part, is really like one of the people that was managing us he had a harvard mba he sold a company of a biotech company for 100 million dollars so they recruited him the person that was under him he was a senior vice president former at a big biotech company the number two person that's a team of three just talking to us every day six days a week for six months so i think that was one of the big takeaways in terms of how you could support programs like that to focus on pandemics another key takeaway is where technologies can go next So the program developed a great number of of point-of-care technologies. I really see now that there's so much rapid antigen test on the market, it's a commodity. If you try to make another one, what can you do differently? What information can you get out of it, right? So now you've got PCR platforms coming along, being approved very soon, point-of-care platforms for home, allowing you to do multiple different uh, tests. So you can do an influenza in one or a COVID test. That's where it's going next. But I really see the real future if you were to start a company now and where you wanna be in the future, where's the next big thing? Sequencing is getting so cheap and so portable. That it's, go, it's going below $1,000 towards $100 mark. And I think it'll go towards a $10 mark. And the US government, uh, an a initiative called BARDA, which is a kind of like a defense initiative for biomedical research, they have put out these requests saying, we want sequencing technologies that are agnostic to upper respiratory diseases. And sequencing is great because you just have to understand the information about a certain number of viruses no matter how it mutates sars-cov-1 sars-cov-2 sars-cov-12 it wouldn't realize that sars-cov is there and they'd be able to pick up with these diseases much more broadly rather than having to develop a new type of test each time a new virus comes out in you know, monkeypox 2022 you've got a basic test for smallpox it can pick up a variant of monkeypox so i see technologies going there in terms of sequencing being the future and more and more portable and cheaper I also see technologies and what you do to actually get the sample prep right to put into these platforms. So a lot of people end up developing the end device, which is really important, but some types, yeah, you need the sample. You know, some samples are easy, saliva, but there's other ways you gotta extract it from blood. There's no point having very complicated processing methods to get your blood sample out and into a lab and spin it down a centrifuge and then put it into a so-called point of care device. That's not really point of care. Right, so think about technologies to make that sample extraction much simpler. Then you can plug that tech into a point-and-care device, whether that be a PCR device, a sequencing device, whether it be a rapid antigen test. You can make a cleaner sample, get better sensitivity.
8: My name is George Papadopoulos and from a consulting firm called Lucid Health Consulting and our specialty is in pricing and reimbursement for yep. pharmaceutical, medical devices, biotechnology products.
0: And so you are participating in a session today on a panel, is that right? Tell us a bit more about what that panel was and what was discussed.
8: Yeah, the panel was current challenges and opportunities in reimbursement, Australian and international. So I was there with a couple of my colleagues. And we were discussing, as the title said, like some of the challenges that we face in Australia around how to get products reimbursed. And we're here at a medtech conference, so it's more around the medtech products, what evidence you need to generate, what payment systems do we have, the challenges either I as a consultant phase or more importantly our clients and how early should they start thinking about pricing and reimbursement and how do they then put it into practice so that was what the panel was about. Am I right in assuming that often
0: organizations who would spend so much time and effort particularly whether it's clinicians or technicians or those that are quite close to the action and the the IP and mm-hmm. the intelligence behind the solution Create something to solve a real meaningful problem, but sometimes the commercials or the reimbursement of the funding conversation doesn't come till later, which can then yeah. unravel some things.
8: Very perceptive. <laughs> yes, <that's, laughs> Yeah, basically one of the, the endpoints of that panel was like, who's going to pay for it? And that's what we find too. It's like on the consulting side, they have great ideas. They do the registration studies. You know, they have to talk to their peers. They think, yeah, we want to use it but they haven't thought about who's going to pay for it, whether it's the patient themselves, cash out of pocket, or some type of reimbursement system, hospital formulae, and they're doing it too late. They get a good product and it won't make money or it won't sustain the business because they haven't thought about you know, who's going to do it. They haven't thought about the strategy, but then they even don't have the tactics to back up that strategy. Yes. Yeah. They just leave it too late.
0: And I guess lastly then, any actionable insights or advice for those that might be creating a solution or thinking about a solution, how to then factor in some of these points around getting funding for for what they're building?
8: I think what we came up with on the panel, some of the main things is to think about it early, go externally for advice. There's a lot of people both here in Australia and internationally who have done it. And again, just think about who's going to pay for it and how are they going to pay for it. And hopefully that gets you to where you're going.
9: My name is Benjamin Mosse. I'm the CEO of Mosse Security. As well as cyber Cybersecurity Institutes. I've created one of the world's largest cybersecurity institutions that teaches cyber. And I've come here today to be on a panel to talk about the state of cybersecurity for the healthcare sector. And let me start by terrifying all of your audience members listening to me right now. I remember probably eight years ago. I did what's called an ethical hack against a healthcare organization that I can't name. Basically, they hired me to play the hacker that would find vulnerabilities in their systems before the real hackers would. And I managed to find vulnerabilities that gained me access to an application where I could change how patients would get surgery. So I could say, instead of getting surgery on your right arm, you're gonna get it on your left arm. Now, before everybody freaks out listening to this, I want to say that there are human procedures in a medical environment or hospital that would probably have prevented a bad person from actually, you know, causing harm in that if you go to hospital, you'll see that they check, you know, where are you having your operation? Why are you here? But what I discovered was that a number of healthcare organizations are running legacy software that was never built to be secure in the first place. And they have accumulated this software into what we call technical debts. And they're still running some of it today, and it's doesn't have good password protections. It doesn't have patches that would actually fix problems. And so the healthcare industry is sort of playing catch up whereby they've made significant investments to uplift their digital infrastructure. They're still dealing with the technical debt, and they've also become the target of more sophisticated hackers that we call the ransomware gangs that are out there to encrypt computer systems as a way of rendering them uh, unavailable, to disable them. And that has actually paralyzed some hospitals in several countries. And so what the Australian government is trying to do is to push some legislation to actually force these organizations to spend more on cybersecurity. And that's what we're going to talk as well in the panel that's coming up in a few minutes. And, you know, they're bringing speakers like me to share these anecdotes and bring awareness to what is really going on, on all these networks. So that by joining forces and having, I guess, a shared consensus that this is a problem we need to tackle, we will see real results in the coming years.
1: And do you have anything else that you wanted to mention just while you're here? Actually,
9: I'd like to talk about a misconception that I wish this audience would know about. And that is that there's a tendency to think that pushing more compliance is going to resolve the cybersecurity problem. In fact, what happens when you create cybersecurity compliance is you um, simplify cybersecurity problems and you uh, simplify them in checklists and steps to be followed. And actually, cybersecurity is much more complex and requires a lot of uh, critical reasoning and a lot of expertise. And so very often when you push compliance, the auditors Become the real enemy of the organizations as opposed to the real hackers like the ones that I played back in the day. And so, really, what I think we need is people at a leadership level that come from a tech background, that have been software developers, that have been network engineers, that have seen firsthand what it takes to deliver cybersecurity in a network or on a medical device. And these are the people who will do security by design, and that will meet the compliance requirements, as opposed to thinking that compliance equals security when it does not.
10: So I'm Professor Asha Rao. I'm Associate Dean of Mathematical Sciences at RMIT. And I've been teaching into cybersecurity for the past 20 years, a little bit more, 22 years. Yes. And also some of the work that I've done has brought me to the notice of the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. And I've I've been invited repeatedly to their intergovernmental meetings on cybercrime.
0: Wow, very cool. So you're on a panel discussion about cybersecurity. What are some of the key points and issues and themes that came out of that session.
10: Okay. So what came out? So I was on the panel, which is implementing cybersecurity in the health tech or the health industries as a whole. And one of the important things that came out is that you need to be cyber secure. Cyber security is not, not a cost function. It's actually will give you profit if you implement the right protocols and stuff. And also the other thing was don't just implement stuff because you know those are the the gizmos are the best things that are around think of what the data is and what data you're trying to protect so do a risk management view of things rather than you know a knee-jerk reactive be proactive look at what are you trying to secure and secure that
0: you said you've been in the cybersecurity game for close to 20 years or over 20 years and you just talked about data then a lot of data that gets generated in healthcare at the moment. Is that the biggest thing that's changed over that period of time, or what's changed in this space of it's cybersecurity? Basically,
10: okay, in, in a general data is, you know, now we are generating, I think, one petabyte of data per year or yeah. something. And a petabyte of data, so if you take the hard drives and you stack them one-on-tip every the each other, two petabytes of data will give you a tower which is taller than the Burj Al Khalifa, which is the tallest building on Earth at the moment. So you can see it's yeah some sub crazy number. Uh-huh. So what has changed over the over the years? Of course, we we have become more data, but what has happened, especially over the last few years, is IOTs. Yeah. IoT is Internet of Things, all of the devices. So you, you may have, so your smartphone is an IoT, but you may have one of those health Fitbits, that's an IoT. But it's also going to the extent of having pacemakers and things which are talking back. And that is where the health industries are most impacted because you know the technology is moving so much faster than our ability to actually secure all of this. So we are not having time to secure. And also one of the ways that security is often, as we say, is sacrificed on the altar of convenience is because people need to work with it. And if people are unable to work with it, and it's not that they don't want to do it. It's not one is they may think it's not their responsibility or it may be that it it makes their life too hard. In which case, that's how. And often people also think, it cannot happen to me. So how often do you hear that? You know, you're interviewing somebody who's been scammed or something. It's like, oh, I never thought it could happen to me. It's like, why are you special? Unfortunately, none of us are special, so we need to watch.
8: Yeah, cool.
10: The one message I want to give to people as a whole is that the first way to be really cyber secure is pause before you click. Pause before you think. Pause before you do something. Just pause for, you know, 30 seconds. Have Should I advice. be doing this? Should
11: I be clicking on this? I'm Jeremy Worm. I'm the founder of Brooker Consulting.
0: Cool. And what does Brooker Consulting do?
11: We specialize in recruiting non-exec directors and CEOs for a range of health, human services and nonprofit clients, including associations. But my own background's in pharmaceuticals, so I have a soft spot for the biotech Mm -hmm. and med tech sector, which is why we're here at this conference.
0: Yeah. And so you're here at the conference, but you're also up on the stage. Is that right?
11: I just chaired a session on uh, boards and how the the need for board skills changes as a company emerges. Mm. The byline of the topic was uh, moving from
0: startup to grown up, which I thought was a really nice topic the organizers chose. I like, I like the, not, not start up to scale up, but start up to grown up. I think that, yeah. you know, so tell me about some of the themes and the topics and the, and the issues that came up in that conversation.
11: Look, we talked about the way that board skills evolve as, as they grow. We mm. talked about the need for skills changing as a company lists and goes through an IPO. Mm. We also talked about the need for due diligence and a couple of the panelists have extensive board experience and they freely admitted that on a couple of occasions they had been uh, invited onto boards and yeah. that there was information that hadn't been revealed to them when they'd been courted for that board. And they say in hindsight, they would much rather have done a little more due diligence and uncovered some of the potential difficulties that later emerged, which was a really revealing thing for these very senior people to say. Mm. Uh, we talked about diversity various forms of diversity, not just gender diversity, but age diversity. I have a personal view that we need more digital natives on boards. Mm-hmm. We need ethnicity to be diverse and we don't want groupthink. Mm. Uh, it's not just about age or gender diversity, there are other types of diversity as well. Yeah, We talked about the need for the chair and the CEO to be ideally living in the same place because, of course, in addition to the formal relationship between those two individuals, it's about the... Um, Meetings on the cuff, uh, cups of coffee, and being in the same city gives gives them the opportunity to nip in the bud any issues as they arise. So that was another point that was made. But in broad terms, it was made clear that they do prefer people who've got experience in boards already and certainly chairs. You can't just go in and and just chair a meeting. You've got to be trained for that and properly groomed they also talked about the need for formal training in governance through the institute of company directors Mm -hmm. women on boards the governance institute etc we talked about remuneration of boards and the need for them to be properly remunerated because of course this is not, and one point that was very well made by Susan Oliver, who's a highly regarded and very high-profile board director herself, this is not something you do as you retire. Mm. This this is a calling. This is a profession. And board members need to take their responsibilities very seriously because there's a huge amount of exposure and risk as a non-executive director of any entity, whether it's MedTech or some other type of company.
0: Something that I think, you know, for the organizations at the earliest stage at like the, the startup stage sometimes can find their board will be comprised of whoever was willing to back them and give them funding to get them in. So whilst the aspiration yeah. might be to put together this board that is well representative yeah. when it comes down to it, if they're going to contribute to the early stage funding, then it's great, they've got to see it. How do you get from that stage to then get into that next point?
11: That's a really tough one. It's a great question. The size of the board was, was something we talked about as well. Yeah. And of course, in the in the initial stages, it's who you can get because yeah. of course, you're not going to be a big name company and you mm. won't be able to attract the heavy hitters. Yeah. But the, the thing we also talked about in that vein that I think is really important in the med tech and biotech space is founder syndrome, where you've got a very smart scientist, clinician, engineer, whatever they might be, who've got their their baby, which in some cases is not a baby, it's it's a teenager because they've been working on this for 12, 15 years, and they haven't quite got it to market. That's a person with real skin in the game, and for some, johnny come lately to come in and tell them how to run the governance of the the company mm. that they founded that's that's a very sensitive one and treading on edge eggshells yeah. is the way forward there good
0: to get an expert in to help with yeah. that uh, that process
11: anything else you want to cover off um sort of we did give some advice to people who want to get on boards as to how to do that and mm-hmm. it's, it's all about networking coming to events like this yeah there were some discussions about how to recruit board members and i as a recruiter myself i have some views on that but mm. it wasn't appropriate for me to push those down the throats of the audience at the time but the feedback we got was that it was informative it was a relaxed discussion we had some structure but it was quite conversational and we got some good questions from the floor so we were happy with that and uh, very pleased to be invited and very grateful to the organising committee for getting together such a good group of uh, very experienced directors for me to pick their brains.
12: My name is Paul Bottomley. I'm the Managing Director of 1MD Recruitment. We're a specialist talent organisation working across medical devices and pharmaceuticals. Good place to be for you guys. And what are you doing at the event today? Yeah, so today I'm going to be part of a panel discussion. So there's there's four of us talking about talent and diversity and whether we should import, poach or grow that talent. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges in this space at the moment. Everyone's fighting for the same people. So, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting topic to talk about and get other people's takes on it because there's a couple of people on the panel that from a recruitment perspective, but also from a com- client perspective as well. So there's a CEO of a company. So it'd be really interesting to see what she's seeing and hearing in the market and how she's attracting talent to her organization as well.
0: At 1MD, how do you guys approach that question? Obviously be a typical one for whether it's hiring managers or founders or people working within the med tech space. How do you start to unpack that difficult question of whether you poach, grow or what was the other one? The yeah. import. import.
12: Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting in one at the moment. Um, I think that the difference with 1MD is because we're ex-industry and we know what good looks like. We really try and partner with our clients and guide them on the hiring process. You know, we don't just take a brief and then try and hit the bullet points of what they're looking for in a candidate. We really try and work with them as a partner and a consultant to tell them who's available in the market, what type of people are, are looking around, what people are actually looking for as well. And I think that having that In a industry expertise is beneficial and they, they do listen to us as a partner. I think a big challenge at the moment is a lot of people are very risk averse when it comes to hiring. So the myth of the pink unicorn is probably our biggest challenge. Everyone wants one, but we know they don't exist. So what we need to do is be able to work with the clients to advise them on, you know, if they want X, Y and Z, then the chances of them getting that are low in such a tight market. So what we need to be able to do is highlight talent and, you know, make sure that at least they've got x and y but if they've got a and b as well justify why they should look at that candidate um and i think that they do listen to us as a partner which is
0: great got a bit of a collaborative approach there anything else you want to cover before we um
12: close it off i I think the biggest thing is just it's it's a message to hiring managers really is be open-minded because we will only submit candidates that we think suit your organization and suit the skill set that you're looking for. We, we, don't, we don't take the, you know, throw as much mud and see what sticks approach with recruitment. We've really worked hard to change that. So I think if you're open-minded as a hiring manager and you listen to what we have to say from a candidate perspective, we'll always put good talent in front of you. It's just whether you're open to a little bit of a diverse set of skills compared
0: to what you're actually looking for. If you keep doing the same thing, you'll keep getting the same results, right?
12: exactly exactly and you know i've got a number of examples and myself included you know i've worked in sales management when i'd never managed people before i worked in marketing management when i'd never done marketing before i got my first job in orthopedic joints and never done joint replacement before so you know i think that the hiring managers when they interviewed me they saw something and they were willing to forego that five years industry experience and they put the time and effort into upskilling me because they saw that i had the potential and There's a great example I have of a a gentleman that I placed into an orthopaedic business. He was an exercise physiologist. He was a cricketer for New South Wales. He rehabbed his brother to become a Paralympian. He had a brilliant story, but he never had any experience. And I rang the hiring manager at the company who I was recruiting a sales role for. And I said, look at this person. He has got something in him. And the hiring manager actually changed the job from a sales role to a clinical role to accommodate this gentleman because he was so impressive. And then I spoke to a sales director of that business recently, and they said that this person was the best hire for that company in the last three years. So I think it just goes to show that if you're willing to look outside the square, that you can really find top quality talent and take your organization to the next level.
13: So my name is Dina Tietkova, and I'm Health tenix. Program Manager, which is an accelerator program for health startups.
0: And what are you doing at OzMedTech 22
13: I'm delighted to be here to join lunch and Learn session, which will be all about the reverse pitch for accelerator and incubator program managers. I'll be joining my colleagues, Australia-wide, to tell the audience a bit more why Health2Next program exists, what we do, how do we help Australian innovators to bring new generation of health solutions to the market and have a bit of discussions with colleagues of how we make lives of startups even easier going forward.
0: Love it. And what do you think are going to be some of the the discussion points that will come out of it? What are the things that startups need in this ecosystem, particularly when it comes to medtech and biotech side?
13: Of course, funding usually very high on the agenda and sometimes funding is not the thing that accelerator programs will provide to huge scale So we'll, of course, touch on the funding, but we will bring all the other aspects as education, connecting to networks, importance of understanding of regulatory requirements, clinical trials, and even need validation for the future success of your startup. And I guess the key message will be that health startups now do have access to a wide portfolio of national programs, Including health nex delivered by UNSW founders and the George Institute for Global Health. So there is a choice, and there is almost a bit of work for health startups to do to make sure they select the right ones for their need at their time in the market, because we do have an abundance. Yes. And my key message about health nex I would say, will be that we exist to help innovators to bring to the market. Solutions that make healthcare more affordable or accessible. So really addressing global health challenges, working on real unmet clinical needs. And that's where the expertise from the Georgia Institute for Global Health comes in. And that's where entrepreneurial support from UNSW founders come in, join forces, and make sure future-proof startups for success.
0: And that's a particularly important point too, I think as well, because often, an innovation in healthcare might be more focused immediately on improving efficiency or, or being cl- like focused on the clinician side, which is important. However, too often we can lose sight of patient access and improving accessibility and the cost from a patient side of things as well. But sometimes that's because the funding's not there, like back to that point again, or who's going to pay for it. So finding ways to navigate that with People who know this space—it sounds like that's really important to do.
13: Exactly, and that's what we believe in. It's education, access to networks, which are both clinical, re- leading researchers, leading clinicians, plus leading entrepreneurs. That's networks that we have. Validating solutions early on, future-proofing for later on, and then supporting our portfolio companies post-accelerator program. Because, let's be honest, three months accelerator program for a medtech startup. It's just a bit of a breeze walk. Uh, we do sub- provide support on an ongoing basis to all our portfolio companies to really enforce future strategic collaborations with clinicians, researchers, and so forth.
14: I'm Ricardo. I'm CEO of Vertedic. Uh, Vertetic is an early-stage startup doing virtual reality therapies for people living with limb loss. I'm pitching at the Early Stage Investment Forum, so I'm one of the startups pitching and getting them yeah, some exposure out there with the investment community.
1: Yeah, and so what are you hoping to get out of the pitch?
14: Well, feedback is always always good to get You know, get some feedback from people in the investment community as well as some exposure for Vertetic as we are currently raising our next capital raise fund. So yeah, I'm just happy to show what we're working on and then see what people think. Our pitch is showcasing what Vertetic is doing so particularly the therapy that we're developing for people who have lost arms and how we're helping them learn how to use a prosthesis by using VR and wearable sensors so yeah like the pitch is going to be presenting that our strategy to get this to people and to the market and our investment ask.
15: Yeah, my name is Loris Zhang. I'm from Visum Technologies, where we want to develop an eye drop device for glaucoma patients.
0: So tell me more about what you're doing at, at Visum.
15: Yeah, absolutely. So what we discovered was that glaucoma patients, once they are diagnosed with glaucoma, which is a raise of pressure in the eye, Mm -hmm. They'll need to take eye drops for the rest of their lives daily. And it it is not really a pleasant experience for most of them who are elderly, who have dexterity issues, hand-eye coordination Mm. issues, and also suffer from side effects because of incorrect dosage. So typical eye drops deliver just way too much, three times more than what you need. So they're constantly overdosing, and these medications have side effects. So because of these reasons, treatment compliance is very low. Up to 60% of all patients, they do not adhere to their daily treatment regime. And clinicians do not know about this. So say you are a glaucoma patient, you can rock up to the clinic and be like, I have been adherent to my treatment every Mm. day, check my pressure it's perfect because I've been doing it the last month constantly without doing it for the previous five months. So it's really tricky for clinicians to know that. So we want to create a device that on one hand help patients to better administer their eye drops. Mm -hmm. So it's a device that helps you with aiming, with uh, squeezing, as well as to record that administration data for mm. clinicians so they know exactly when you missed it, how by how much, yes, and how many doses, whether that's going to make an impact on your, your treatment and whether they can intervene to, to help you improve your yeah. Com- yeah. compliance. And
0: so it's a device, software, combination of both? Yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah it has
15: cool. a hardware and a software. Yeah.
0: And so what were you doing at the event today? Were you up on the stage?
15: Yeah, yeah. I was pitching for a little bit just yeah. to get some more publicity and was, also talking to a bunch of people, interesting people. Yep. The first time in a conference like this
0: and so any key kind of takeaways from whether it's from the other sessions that you saw or from feedback that you got from afterwards anything you're taking away from this session
15: yeah it was a really feed, good feedback that we got so in general when you're doing startup you have valid propositions right but we yeah. got questioned on what well, we're doing good for patients we're doing good for the clinicians but what actually are we taking away what burden are we taking away from the system mm and how that benefits the bigger image, not just the consumers.
16: Uh, Buzz Palmer, CEO of the MedTech Actuator. It's great right to have you here, Buzz. What are you doing at, here at the event? Look, a few things. One is, first of all, to meet people that I've not seen in two years. It's always nice to bump into those and say hello and have a coffee and remember what people look like and see how much they've aged in two years' time, including <laughs> myself. So it's a pretty it's, a, it's a pretty nice to see all that. We're, people, all, we're, we're in
0: it together. Yeah. We look <laughs> so
16: different, right? We look so different. People put on weight, people lost weight, people have gone grey. You, know, so, you, you forget people's names as well. But no, actually, you know, first and foremost, <laughs> to see old friends, family, and, and see how things uh, progressing. Uh, I've been on two panels. I was on a panel uh, on uh, Wednesday talking about what's hot in medtech. Cool. And I've just been on a panel now. Actually, a judge on the uh, early stage startup initiative. Uh, Eight startups gave uh, phenomenal presentations and we were four judges just So looking at a winner, looking at who's really got an opportunity moving forward. And it was really good fun, really high quality, very impressive.
0: And so with the first panel about what's hot Mm. in MedTech, what are some of the themes and points that came out from from that session?
16: Well, I think, first of all, there's a lot of hot people in MedTech. So I think that's (laughs) worth pointing out. (laughs) And so we're a very lucky sector to have (laughs) such hotness in this space. So that's great. Look, I think a few things. I think um, there's a big move towards digital innovation. You know, we've seen COVID really... Translate and fast-track some of those technologies that have been sat around for a long time, you know. And then all of a sudden, we realise that once your back is against the wall, you can make things happen really quickly and really effectively, and that's great. And you know, there's uh, I've heard this numerous times, but post-war, post-pandemic, you tend to see a decade of innovation, and uh, especially in health, and we're right at the precipice of that right now. So what are we seeing? Well, I think hot is certainly digital innovation. How can how can consumerization of tech become a thing? How do patients, consumers, take control of their own health? They want to know way in advance that they've got something that's happening internally that they can't physically see or feel and so they want access to that kind of data so they can make informed choices about you know what do they need to change in their lifestyle what interventions do they need to have uh, nice and early so that's really important i think Robotics is certainly becoming a a hot topic right now, always has been, but perhaps a little bit more so now, surgical robotics. And then I think the third thing that's hot is anything that provides efficiencies in the healthcare system. So whether it's efficiencies through better technology, better data, uh, increased productivity of technologies as well, so speed. So I think they're the things that we're seeing in the space that are really hotting up and, uh, you know, so it's it's an exciting time. A lot of hotness. Something
0: I found as well, and I'm, I'm interested from your perspective whether you're seeing the same, is that not only coming off the back of COVID and this appetite and, and I guess, experience with innovation and doing things quickly, but... Also we hear, we're seeing more and more things in like practical application on a day to day so like the robotics example and um, you know seeing more and more applications it's not just concepts and theories it's like here is an example of it being utilized right now and actually having a meaningful so we're actually seeing some runs on the board which is yeah, telling us it, it, it's
16: true isn't it I think you know there's there's two there's two dimensions to that the first thing is that all of a sudden patients are more open to their health than ever before. You know, they've been forced to use technologies that they've never used before. They've been, for, been forced to take tests at home and share those tests with the public and that's never happened before. So, And that certainly came out of last night's conversation. Uh, so I think, you know, there's an openness now that health is perhaps not as scary or diagnostics and tests are not as scary. And so therefore, from a consumer patient perspective, we're seeing a more open-mindedness towards that and perhaps a different kind of education around that as well. And from a clinical perspective, just the reality that, you know, health is a slow move Beasts, and actually, if we can have a technology that improves any aspect of it—efficiency, productivity, accuracy, uh, speed, whatever it might be—then people are more open to it. And I think that the key to that is actually government saying all of a sudden, we'll pay for that. It, you may have been you know sort of lobbying for 10, 12 years, but now our backs are against the wall. We're going to pay for that. So I think there's that element as well, which is really important. So I think there's been a, a kind of a perfect storm of change coming from both the consumer, patient, government, and the clinical aspects as well. And it's been quite a—it's been quite a, to watch it. Sort, sort of, of progress come and, come and develop has been quite yeah. amazing.
0: And then lastly, to bring it to the, the panel that you've just come from or the judging that you've mm. done, it, it's then brought about all of this, this environment that we're in now. There's a lot of emerging startups and, and people coming through with some, some cool ideas. Anything really stand out to you as some really cool applications
16: of technologies and medical technology that's going to make a difference? There's lots, and I don't want to play favoritism to any of the startups, but there's some really good ideas. I think, I think one thing I can say and one thing that's really, really impressive it's just the amount of clinicians that are looking to get involved in these startups. That, that, you know, this really innovative entrepreneurial clinicians, either as founders or as contributors to startups, noting that they're the ones that are going to change this kind of generational push towards healthcare. They're the ones that are going to adopt the new technologies. And to see them integrated in such a fashion, I think, has is, is just been a, a real sort of great opportunity for Australian sort of healthcare innovation. But from a startup's perspective, you know, there's lots of digital health stuff out there. But the deep tech is still coming through. The deep tech, the deep diagnostics, the devices, the robotics, they're still coming through, but just with a different speed and a different focus. And perhaps the, you know, the capital markets, are uh, looking at them in a slightly different way. Health has opened up perhaps a little bit more than previously. And so it's been a really good sort of thing to see. The thing now is, can we as a country, can we as a nation capture this? Can we really position ourselves to capture it now? And can we grow it? Can we take advantage? Can we catapult our innovations, our entrepreneurs, our capital markets into a space that we've not been before and I think we can we've got to do it together we've got to be collaborative about it, but I think we can do it and I'm really excited to see what the next five to ten years in Australia looks like because because the goods are there.
17: My name is Lorraine Shuru. I'm the CEO of OzBiotech, and have been with OzBiotech for over a decade now. Wow there you go so fantastic event the last couple of days how's the event gone for you how what have you what have you enjoyed from the event? Well, to start with, we're delighted to see so many people turn up to the event. So this is the largest AusMedTech we've ever held and very demonstrative of the growth in our sector. I introduced the conference at the beginning, um, talking about the the amazing growth in the sector, in the medical technology and digital health space. We've had 49% growth in the number of companies in two years, which if you think about the demands that that places on skills and investment and partnering and all of the things that this conference has been well known for, this is a perfect opportunity for people to connect and to further their technologies and to make the ecosystem more buoyant. In speaking to some of the speakers who've
0: come off the stage, I've found some of the recurring themes and concepts have been around topics like the challenges around manufacturing and whether to do that locally and the process of doing that offshore. A lot around protection of ip and patents and and securing all of that work in the front end but also a lot around the startups and the role that they're playing in the ecosystem what are some of the themes and topics that have kind of come out from the last couple of days that you think are really front of mind with the medtech and biotech community? Yeah,
17: I think um, manufacturing's definitely been a strong theme, but this conference aims to think about all of the levers that enable the ecosystem to thrive. And so it's not surprising that those things that you've mentioned are actually front of mind because we need all of those things working in tandem and unblocked as a pipeline so that we can move technologies from discovery through to actually put implanting in patients, monitoring patients, diagnosing. In this space, that's the absolute essence of what this conference is about, the business of biotech, rather than the discovery end of the spectrum. So we have less science on display and more about the the levers that, that enable a business to thrive in this environment. I think if you think about the ecosystem in terms of the SME component, we've got of those 1,427 companies that we have in Australia in the biotech and medtech space, 80% pre-revenue. Is that right? So they're pre-patient, they're pre-regulation, they're still in their commercialisation phase. And so that means that there's a very strong onus on that part of the pipeline. So that component of how you protect your IP to enable enough investment to it, to manufacture a prototype, to undertake your clinical trials, to all of those get, things yeah, are, are, are really top of mind for the people that are attending. And you'll, you'll find that when you look at the conversations that are going on, that they'll be between experts in their space, so patent attorneys and, uh, and people developing technologies and thinking about how they could apply that, that IP. Um, to create value for the company and, and value for Australia. Got it. yeah,
0: what's next, osbiotech, you know we're, we're back in person doing this and then we're, what's we're going to stay on a roll, what's what's coming up on this place? Uh,
17: what's coming up for us is we've got the osbiotech conference in Perth in October, so twenty six to twenty eighth of of October. and we're also presenting the investment forum osbio invest twenty twenty two will be held at the same time in Perth. And that's an opportunity for our companies to get up and pitch to investors. And we attract investors in from around the world to look at the technologies in development in Australia, which is a critical part of what AusBiotech does to support the ecosystem. So lots coming up in that space. I think the future of AusMedTech... As well, So we're in Adelaide next year uh, in May, and we'll be looking then at the, the growing importance of digital health and, and AI and, and those sorts of technologies that have been a shift from the traditional medical device where we started with this conference 12 years ago.
0: Before you go, just a reminder to jump over to our YouTube channel and subscribe and watch some episodes there. There are podcast episodes, summit sessions, and a bunch of other interesting content on our channel. You can just search Talking Health Tech in the YouTube app, or click on the link in the show notes of your podcast player, and it should just take you straight there. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player, and for more information, visit talkinghealthtech.com.